we're doing this series on theology on fire. And I guess that just means that the theology, the belief system that we have, is not just something that is a static. I mean, it's not just something that's static and, and dead, but it's a dynamic thing. When, when we walk in faith with what we believe, and we can't even understand the theology unless we know Christ. And here's the thing. Deception always begins when we separate our theology from the person of Christ. Yeah. That's where deception always begins. You could have great theology. I mean, Satan had great theology because he was in the throne room of God. But he was deceived because he's, he did not understand who the person of Jesus Christ was. And so my desire, one of my heart desires for this church here is, is that, we would, that we would always connect the personhood of Christ with everything that we preach here. And that everything that is that is being spoken about, and so I want to talk about Christ this morning. What a what a what a what a cool thing to do, huh? Talk about Jesus, and I've just been so stirred up in my um, walk with God these last several months, just discovering Christ being the center of our theological configuration, and so that's why I'm thinking about this topic and this term, theology on fire. And so let's turn to John chapter six. And this is the Thanksgiving season, and I think that one of the sad things that happens in any culture, and it's happened in our American culture, is when we take sacred days like Thanksgiving and, and Christmas and Easter, and we lose sight of really what is the, the deep meaning of what it is, and we settle on this subpar meaning of what it is that we're celebrating and we really find ourselves very far away from what it really truly means. And so when we think about Thanksgiving, it's really more than just pilgrims thanking the Indians, which we've heard, and that is a great story. But I think the biblical understanding of what Thanksgiving is, and even more so, taking that word and bringing it up another level, another notch to the spiritual, to a supernatural level. Because I want to, I, I don't know, I grew up kind of in a stoic church in New England, and there was a lot of just religious principles before I came into this church, and so there were these there would be these buzzwords: repentance, or thanksgiving, or joy, or these buzzwords that just were buzzwords, but they didn't really have. I didn't know what the meaning was for them, and so when we think talk about Thanksgiving, um, we're talking about. Um, I think we're talking about something subparts really what God really has for us to live in as believers, and that is gratitude. So I want to talk about the difference between thanksgiving and gratitude. Okay, you follow me so far? So I think if you just stick with me the first 10 minutes, then I think we're gonna, we're gonna, you're going to understand what I'm trying to get to. And so, uh, but before we can even understand the true meaning of thanksgiving, we have to understand what is satisfaction. Satisfaction. What is satisfaction? And we don't understand what satisfaction is without understanding the reality of something that's deeper. Satisfaction deeper than that is spiritual hunger. I want to hit spiritual hunger for a few minutes this morning. We don't understand how discontent we are because we don't understand the depth. We don't understand the depth of what we are. We are deep people. You know that? We are deep people. Human beings are deep. They are deep, they hunger for depth, they hunger for spiritual, and that's why we have spiritual hunger. That's why there is that drive. I'm going to talk about a few minutes about that drive. But we hunger because we're people. We are not dumb, we're not sheep, we're not animals. We are very intelligent spiritual beings. Even if we're not saved, 
there is a spiritual hunger in our life. And that can take many different forms. And, and the third thing is in this introduction is that there's a, there's the difference with Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving really talks about the object that we're thankful for and the service. Okay? Whereas gratitude, and that actually can, that can actually include entitlement. Uh, and we live in, we, in, here in the southern states, we live with a lot of Christian entitlement, don't we? We see it all around. We see that. We see that as the first floor of the church. If you look at a church from this perspective, that there's two floors. There's the first floor, which is really uh, serving. It's really service-oriented. It's really serving the physical needs of people. Uh, there's great kids' programs. And this is really... This is something that is part of our ministry. There's, there's great um, things going on for the community. There is, there's that first floor kind of Christianity. There's great music. There's all of these things that we can find in a lot of amazing churches. And that's great, but that's only first floor. There's a second floor, which is really the upper room. And this upper room is what Jesus is calling us into. He's calling us into, okay, that's great. This is great. The, the, the humanitarian operations that are going on are great. And it's great to go to a church that says, hey, you know, we were able to do this humanitarian thing for all of these people. There, there's, a, there's a lot of joy in that, and, then, and there's a, that satisfaction. But there's something that is higher than that. And I'm not saying that's bad, but there's something higher. God is calling us higher to the second floor, which is the upper room. I got saved in a church that did not pre- preach the gospel in a congregational church in New England in Medway, Massachusetts, which is just outside of Boston. And I was, this was years ago. I was a nine-year-old kid. There was this hunger in my life for God that God, the Holy Spirit, was stirring up in me. And I didn't know what it was. I had been given a Bible. I started reading the Bible. I got to the Tower of Babel, and I just didn't understand what was going on. And I figured, okay, I got a Bible. I'm a nine-year-old. And I just start reading right from the beginning to the end. And I kind of got stuck in Genesis 10, I think. And just reading about the Tower of Babel. And this was getting a little crazy for me, reading about giants and all that stuff. And, and I thought, okay. And then I remember hearing a message. We had the pastor. I don't know what was going on with that church. The pastor wasn't there for a few weeks. And they had someone come into town. There were these, uh, there were these university students. And they come in. And uh, they were doing these skits about Charlie Brown. Goofy skits. I mean, really goofy. And I'm sitting there as a nine-year-old watching this and thinking. And they took this big, huge mahogany wooden pulpit. That they had and they moved it and nobody had ever moved that thing in the church i was like amazed like what's going to happen here so they cleared the stage and they're doing these goofy skits about charlie brown and 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 linus and i was like what is this all about and then they just kind of at the end had a little message about the gospel and then they said there's probably about 150 of us in that church there old old church in downtown medway massachusetts west medway and and they said if you'd like to receive christ as your personal savior and would you if you'd like to know god and we're going to meet upstairs in the upper room. And it was called the upper room. And, you, and we'll pray with you. And I thought, cool, this sounds like this, I, I need to be there. So I went up there and guess the whole church was there. <laughs> the, the whole church showed up. I mean, everybody there. Everybody goes upstairs. Usually there was another hall that we went to where the, all the donuts and all the coffee and everything was. And I liked that church because the donuts were always great. There was always lots of donuts. And we could just pig out on donuts. And, man, we'd go home and we'd be so full of, like, ten donuts and but nobody went to the donuts. Everybody went upstairs to the upper room. And there were some awesome conversations going on. And I'm just a little kid. I don't think that anybody really understood that I was there to get saved too. So nobody really talked to me until the end. Somebody said, hey, you know, and I was like, yeah, I'd like to. I don't remember what I said, but they kind of figured out I'm there to talk with, you know, to, 
to find out more. And so somebody prayed with me. And, and I remember I got saved. I didn't have any amazing experience. My parents were downstairs, and they had a, my, dad, my mom was a backslidden Christian, and my dad was just an American pagan from New England. <laughs> it was just like, not even saved at that point. And they were waiting for me to come downstairs. When I came downstairs, that was during this born-again movement in the States, remember? And they came down, you're born again. I'm like, okay. And then my mom, we get home. My mom gives me all of these notes from her Bible school. She was a Bible school student in Boston somewhere. Met my dad. He was unsaved. They just kind of, life started without God in that marriage. And so I get saved, and my mom gives me all her Bible school notes. Everything's written in cursive, and I don't understand cursive. I'm reading like, okay, so I'm reading through these pages. And, but God began to stir in my heart, and there was, this, there was this stirring in my heart for something that was the next level, the, the second floor. And I remember that there was something in my heart that had been spoken to even before I got saved, that had been spoken to, that I just knew that, okay, this has got to be, I mean, this has got to be addressed. And we were in the upper room. Wouldn't it be great to have a cafe, somebody called it, upper room? I don't know. Just the, I mean, the upper room cafe where we're just dealing with second floor stuff. I mean, yeah, we have first floor. We're going to have a first floor awesome turkey dinner today. I mean, we got great teachers, Miss Taffney, Miss Daphne. But I think second floor is really where Jesus is at with his 12 disciples. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of persecution going on. There's people that probably don't want to be up there in that upper room. But they were communing with something. They were communing with Christ. And they were walking away with something with spiritual content. And I think that that's what I truly desire. And so there's a difference between Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, you can be thankful and just say, hey, thanks, but never be satisfied. Yeah. You know, gratitude is something totally different. And I want to hit that near the end. So John chapter 6, verse 22. Let's read these verses together. John 6, verse 22. And on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea. Now, what's going on here? Jesus has just multiplied the bread and the fishes, right? He's done this incredible miracle. He's fed the 5,000. And if you look carefully, it was 5,000 men. 5,000 hungry men, that's a nightmare. I mean, men that are hungry. Not just women, but men. And there was... And so you have 5,000 men, and then you have on top of that women and families. And so it's very possible that there's 15,000 people here or more that are getting fed the bread, and they're getting fed fishes. And they're eating, and so this is an amazing miracle. And so Jesus gets in a boat, and he, he goes on to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And the crowd that remains there on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias, and if you look at the map, uh, Capernaum, where Jesus was, if you go south, there's Tiberias, and so he literally kind of goes north to Capernaum, that there are other boats showing up near the place where they had eaten the bread. Now get this, watch this. They had eaten the bread that the Lord had given thanks, after the Lord had given thanks. Note that. They had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Why is that important? Because there's something here about Jesus giving thanks for the bread and then breaking it. That is when the miracle happened. And so when the crowd in verse 24 saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats, went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Verse 25, And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they're like, Rabbi, where did you go? You left us. You disappeared. You just took off. You didn't even tell us where you went. You, how did you get here? What are you doing here? And then Jesus says in verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, and don't you love Jesus? He's always looking at our motives. 
He's always pinpointing people's motives. He's always showing us the depths of our heart. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You ate your fill of the loaves, and now you're hungry again. You're hungry again. The context here, and you know when we read about bread here, back in those days, meat was not something that people ate every day, like we do in Texas. We eat meat every day. You know, we're eating meat every day. I mean, I ate meat last night at Rodney's birthday party. We just so much meat, you know, brisket and tons of meat. But they didn't have meat every day. Only the rich had that. Their main staple was bread. And bread would give them strength and it would put them on their feet. Bread was something that God, as we know, was giving to the children of Israel as they were marching through the desert. Every morning they had this bread called manna and it was sweet. And it was uh, something to look forward to in such a hostile wilderness. And so when God gives us bread from heaven, he's, taking, he's talking about a metaphor here. He's giving us a metaphor that is talking about spiritual fulfillment. So I'm talking about satisfaction here. Satisfaction that leads to true gratitude. And so here Jesus is, and he says, God gives you the bread of heaven. He's talking about symbolism here. Let's go to the next verse in 27. This is talking about this bread is what is going to feed the spiritual hunger that, that we see happening in people's lives. And so here in verse 27, do not work for food that perishes. Now the perishes, the word here perishes is a word that describes, it's not something that perishes right away. But after a while, it just starts to rot. You ever get something in your life that's awesome, that kind of fulfills the need for a while, and then it starts to rot? And you start to get tired of it, and it doesn't fulfill you anymore? And so he's saying here, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And in verse 28, they said to him, and, and get this here, Jesus is saying, don't work for the food that's going to be perishing, okay? And then he's talking, because he's talking about here effort. He's talking about striving. He's talking about the endeavor that, that, that um, the work of the search. And then he says, Jesus said, and then they said to him, what must we do to do the works of God? So Jesus, if we're not supposed to be working for bread, we get it that we're supposed to be working for God. But what does that look like? What does that look like, that work? And we're going to see that in a, in a second, that these are one of the ways that people are searching to fill, to fill the need. And Jesus said to them, this is the work of God that you would believe in him who he has sent. This is the work to, that you would believe on him in whom he has sent. And so this is the context of what's happening in these verses and so let's look at here the work of the search. I meet and you meet, we all meet every day, people that are working, that are laboring in the search. People say, hey, I want a better life. I want to I be in a better position. I want to be better educated. I want to have more money. I want to have, have a better situation in my life. So they're cre- that's creating this drive in their life, this search, the work of the search. And that can happen in a Christian's life. We can get a concept of God. We can have a theology of God where we don't even understand that God knows what I truly need. And we begin to think in our American mindset that I got to work to make this happen, right? Because there is something about the American mindset. And I think especially here in Texas, I see it. And it's an amazing thing. There's an incredible work ethic here. I mean, if you look at the DNA of a Texan, I mean, where did they come from? Well, they came from Europe. They came from Germany. They came from, they came from Mexico. Maybe they 
They've come from different parts. And they've come here and they've worked. They've, they've, they've pulled themselves up from their, own, from, the, from their own bootstraps, right? That's a term that's from Texas. That's a Texas, right? Is that a Texan term? Like, I'm going to self-reliance. I'm going to make this happen. And I'm going to do this. And there's a high work ethic here. And so what can happen so easily is, is that we can bring that into the kingdom of God. We bring that mindset into the kingdom of God. And that's so anti-grace. It's so anti-God as the Father provider. And we can bring that in and say, God, I got this. And, we, and this is actually secret pride. And we can think, okay, I got this. God bless my work. And so here, here Jesus is saying, don't work for the food that perishes. But this is the work of God. Just trust him. Just trust him. Wait on him. Wait on the Lord. And I want to just take us to the next step here is that, is that we are seeking spiritual satisfaction. The unsaved guy, the unsaved girl looking for a husband or a date, or she is looking for, so that is spiritual hunger. That she is hungering for something that is more than this life could ever give. And that is spiritual by nature. So we can become content, right? Okay, so we see that Israelites are in the desert. They're eating manna every day. And they are content. And actually, they can't eat all of it. So some of it that they don't eat is actually rotting in the ground. And they can't eat that. And so we can actually become content in, f- f- in fulfillment and things that are going to disappoint us. And not, and, and, but not right away. I read a poem the other day by... And I, I, I like reading literature. I like poetry. I, I'm just kind of that guy that likes old literature. There's a poet. He's a big name in... American literature is Wallace Stevens, and I don't even know if he's a believer or not, but he said this thing in a poem called Sunday Morning, of all poems, and he writes this, and it just struck me, and he said, in contentment, in my fulfillment, I still feel the need of some imperishable bliss, because when all my needs are met, when I have everything I need, there's still something that is, that is, that is eternally, that does this eternal desire. Do you know what I'm talking about? There is the it. There is, I don't know what it is, but it is it, and I'm seeking for that, and I'm desiring that. This is this elusive it that people seek all of their lives. It's something that I'm chasing it down, but you know something, you know what the truth is? And I think that we know it in this room, but maybe we don't. It's not something that this life can give us. It's not something that this Christian culture can give us. It's not something that is in this world that can give it to us. We can go to the best church, we can go to the best places, we can go to the best... Um, locations and, dis- and just not find it. And we're just, and you know what I'm talking about? We're just, we have it. We have what we want. We have a nice house and we have a nice car and we have this nice situation. We have the, the, cir- the situation of our dreams, but there is this eternal hunger and it's Ecclesiastes talks about it in Ecclesiastes chapter three. It's eternity in the heart that needs yeah. to be satisfied yeah. and that only one person can satisfy and that is spiritual hunger. And until a person who does not know Christ understands that it's Christ that they're looking for, then there's not going to be any satisfaction. G.K. Chesterton, he's a, he's, a, he's a theological, he's just a brain in, in, in theology. And just a, if you like theology and that kind of stuff, he's got a lot of great stuff to write. But he wrote this. He said, when a young man is knocking on the door of a prostitute, he's really searching not for the prostitute. He's really looking for God. He's looking for something that only Jesus can fulfill. He's looking for an adventure that only God can give in, to a person by a life of faith. And so Jesus here is talking about that. So there's seven ways, there's seven strategies. And I'm going to go through these really quick. 
But there's seven ways that we as a person can try to deal or try to handle this spiritual hunger. This, this hunger that we have inside of us. And there's seven ways that people deal with it. And I think it's also an interesting picture. When you hear these, it's going to almost sound like the life, the, the life timeline of a person as they get older. It may or may not be that way, but it just seems that way to me. The first strategy of how people try to handle the, um, the spiritual hunger, this, this desire for satisfaction, is number one, is the naive strategy or the young strategy. A young person, usually in college, they're unhappy in life, but they're just thinking, I'm getting ready. I'm getting my whole life. I'm getting my education. I'm getting everything I need. And then I'm going to graduate, and then I'm going to be happy because I'm going to have everything I need to jump into my career. And that's that naive attitude about life that college students can so easily have. When we were living in, in Ukraine and we were living in Poland, it was during a time when it was very difficult in Eastern Europe. And it was a time where we were doing a lot of ministry to university students. That had, We were Americans, broke Americans, <laughs> living in Ukraine. And that was a phenomenon for them. They're like, what are you doing here? I mean, you're just... They had more money than we did. We were like scrounging for food and we just had such an interesting missionary life. And we were administering to these university students and I just remember them in Poland that was coming out of communism. They were in Ukraine coming out of communism and I remember this bright picture that they had for the future. That I'm going to learn English, I'm going to get my education, I'm going to leave this country and I'm going to have a great life. And you know what? The next step was that they discovered was that they were, they were disappointed. And I remember seeing these kids grow up, go into the world, graduate from college, and not finding what it is, what they were looking for. And they became angry activists. They became angry people. And they started out in life, and they began to realize that they're not getting what they wanted. And they, began to, they would say, oh, I'm a victim of prejudice. I'm a victim of, of like, you know, uh, the rules and reg- regulations of society. And then they just begin to push against the barriers. And then finally, when they break through these barriers, they discover they're in a place where, guess what? I'm still not happy. The third strategy is, is just this driven strategy. And it's, and it's like, you, it's a person that gets into their 30s maybe, and this may not be the case for everybody, but it seems like they, they, they get to this place where they haven't found it yet, and they say, you know something? They, they evaluate their life, and they say, I need to get a different spouse. I need to get a different house. I need to get a better car. I need to get a better job situation. And they start making these radical changes in their life because there's something that's not satisfied. The eternity in their heart has not been addressed by Jesus Christ. And they're looking for it, and they just they become very driven. And this is really the basis in a lot of ways of our society in the States, isn't it? The hustle. The hustle, hustle, hustle. I think I was talking with Colton about it yesterday. Like, the, the, you know, we're just nonstop. Why? Because I think because there's this, inner, there's this inner thing that can't be satisfied until we meet Christ. That leads to fear. Because when we discover that I've been hustling for so long that, I, that this is not, it's not meeting my needs, I'm starting to lose my youth, I get to a point where that, um, I, begin to, I begin to live in fear. And, and it was described, this one guy described it like this. He said, I was 39, I was taking a shower, and I, I looked at myself and I realized I'm getting old and I don't have anything that I wanted in my life. I didn't have what I thought it was going to be. That I thought when I looked back, as a, I looked back to my years as a youth, as a teenager, as a college student, that this is not happening. And this fear began to set in and he began to blame himself. 
that he wasn't going to find it out there. He began, to, he began to beat himself up and to say that there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. Have you been there? <laughs> I've been there. There's something wrong with me. There's something, I'm not doing something right. I'm not this, I'm not that. We begin to blame ourselves. We begin to look at ourselves because we're missing the whole point. And that leads to the fifth thing, and that's just cynicism. This is like, I'm going to get positive here in a minute. Let me just get through these here. It's getting really dark here. But they become cynical. There's a cynicism. There's like, guess what? It's not there. I'm giving up. It's not out there. And you hit 40s, you hit 45, you hit your 50s, and you're like, guess what? And you're talking to a kid and going to college, and you're like, I remember when I used to think like that. Wow, was I naive. You know, wow. Was I... And you know what? This is so sad, but I saw this happen in Europe, in Eastern Europe. I saw friends that we knew that, we, that were so on fire for the Lord, that had so many, so many dreams in, in serving the Lord and so many aspirations in what life was going to be like. And guess what? It didn't turn out that way. And, that they, and they met a cross, and it wasn't the way they thought it was going to be. And guess what happened? They became disillusioned. I know this is very philosophical this morning, but they became disillusioned. And guess what? Oswald Chambers says that disillusionment is one of the greatest things that can happen to a believer. It's when I understand that my concepts were so messed up, they were so far short of the glorious plan that God had for me, that now I can begin to look by faith to something that God has bigger for me. Otherwise, there's cynicism. It's like, guess what? It's not out there. You know what? And have, we, have you guys met older people in your lifetime that said, I remember the time that I used to think like you, but now <laughs> I'm all the better. I've learned that this life's not going to be that way. You ever talk to somebody like that? And they just throw water on your fire? And you're like, that happened to Hudson Taylor. I mean, he was an 18-year-old missionary. I mean, young Bible college student, had this fire to be a missionary. Um, in, 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 in Asia, and he met this old man in, in England, and the old man said to him, I remember how I thought like you, but now I'm, I'm, now I'm the wiser. And then Hudson Taylor went home, he got on his knees and said, God, I pray that I never become that man, that I would never lose my vision, that I would never cast away that hunger in my heart. And so what we do is that cynicism, cynicism means to look at something pure and say that's unpure. It's just so jaded, it's so messed up. And and we say, hey, it's not out there. So guess what I got to do? I got to harden my heart so that I'm no longer being hurt. So that I'm, no, I'm hardening my heart so that I'm no longer looking for that love. I'm not looking for that satisfaction and that meaning in my life. And then the sixth thing and the last thing, and this is something that's very Greek, and you find this in the Stoic philosophies, that you find that they detach the heart. They detach their heart. They detach their heart because Eastern religion... Um, says that the reason why you're always unhappy is because you, that you we attach our heart to things and to people. And if you detach your heart and you never get too attached, then when you lose those things, it's not going to hurt so much. And guess what that does? It dehumanizes us. You and I are human beings. We've been made for to live an amazing life with God, a life of faith, a life of taking radical steps with what we would be called, what people would call us naive. You're young you got this young, that's okay, I'm 53 and I'm still naive, I would say, about what, and I don't mean that in the wrong way, but I'm still believing in a dream, and I'm still living the dream, and I'm still, and are there disappointments? Yes. Is there disillusionment? Sometimes. But then there's that reconnecting to the trajectory of Christ, and it's, and it, and it, and so, somebody said to 
a man that I know, he's now home with the Lord. He was an elderly pastor. He was a man who, who just laid down his life for many people and did so many things for people. And, so, and, and later on in his life, when he had gone through a lot of betrayal, someone asked that pastor, they said, do you still think that, do you still trust people? Do you still, do you still have that, that love for people? And he says, yes, I want to believe the best. I want to believe the best because people don't even know why they're so broken. So we detach our heart and we become, we just become, we become dehumanized, we become dehumanized. Have you seen that happen in our culture today? In our Christian culture today? Dehumanized people. I mean, I have. I've been there. I've been dehumanized. I've been detached. Um, afraid to let my heart get into something. When we were in this adoption process, and I'll tell you a little, I'm going to be a little vulnerable here. When we got into the, the adoption process, I, don't, I couldn't believe how scary that was for me. I didn't think it was going to freak me out, but I was like, my gosh, I'm getting, they've got this little kiddo, and what if he breaks our heart? Well, guess what? He's going to break your heart. Because <laughs> kids break your heart. And that's okay, because you know what? At first, I didn't realize that this would be so hard. But you know what's so beautiful about parenting? And I think that God the Father kind of has this thing like, don't worry, I'm going to, I don't want to give this the wrong way, but like, when you become a dad, there, there's just, there's, there's a lot of brokenness there. There's a lot of heartache. And you're like, okay, God, now I get it. This is what you go through every day. And you get a chance to, to identify with God the Father. So we detach our heart, and that's not God's will. That's not God's will. And we live in a culture that has detached hearts, and that are dehumanized people, and we see it in the church. We see it in the Christian community. And this is not God's heart. Number seven, and this is the right way. This is the way that we want to deal with this spiritual hunger. Because you know something, when we hunger, when temptation seems appealing to us, when we look at something in the world and we're like, wow, that's beautiful, guess what? We're missing the boat. There, we have this hunger and we are, we are disassociating it from Christ and we're looking at this thing in the world that we think that can please us. So Jesus here, he goes back to the bread. He's talking about bread as the, as the strength and it's what puts, the, puts us on our feet as, as human beings and and C.S. Lewis said this, and I read this quote to my Uber driver this morning. He goes, hmm. He's like, <laughs> he, he, C.S. Lewis heard, read, he wrote this. He said, I find in myself a longing which this world cannot meet. So it must mean that I was made for another world. Yeah. I think you may have heard that. But there is stuff in our life that when we realize that, you know what, this, this world's not going to meet that. And guess what? No person's going to ever meet that. And that's good because... Because if we put our, if we put in my marriage or my relationships or my friendships or in the church and I put expectations on another person that only God can fulfill, that's bad for two reasons. Because number one, I'm never going to get fulfilled. And number two, I'm going to kill that person. Because <laughs> that person, that my wife or my, you know, your husband is never going to be able to fulfill those, fulfill those desires and those expectations. And so... C.S. Lewis said that I, I, I've been made for another world. I asked my Uber driver this morning, I said, what do you think that means? And he goes, wow. <laughs> it's like, it's like, whoa. I don't know if I was ready for that philosophy this morning. Augustine said this. The reason that why that we, di- that we have discontentment is because our loves are disordered. What really makes us experience satisfaction is not so much what you believe and not so much what you think, and not even so much what you do, but it's what you love the most supremely. It's what are we loving the most supremely? What is the, I mean, it's not wrong to love. I love sports. 
I love cycling. I love, there's a lot of things I love. It's not wrong to love those things, but it's got to be in the right order. Because if it's out of the wrong, if it's out of order, then it's going to, it's going to be cursed and it's not going to be blessed. And I'm going to actually, if I love my career more than my family, for example, it's going to destroy my family, right? And so this is what happens is that he says, when you love God supremely, and this is Augustine saying this, he says, when you love God supremely, then and only then does the contentment start to come. So when we begin to understand loving God, that is when contentment starts to come into my life. When I love God above everything else. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. Because, I mean, if we love something, anything that this world can give us, it's going to break our heart and it's not big enough to fit the need. But here's the problem. And we're going to look at the problem here for a second. He says, let's look at verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do? Excuse me, what sign do you do that we, may, that we may believe you? Okay, this is an interesting question. Can you see the entitlement here? What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? And what work do you perform? What are you going to do for us? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Right, so, hey, what are you going to do for us? You know, Jesus, what, are you, what, what is this going to do for me? What is this going to do for my family? What is this? This is the way we enter into relationships, and this is the way we enter into new circumstances. What is this going to do for me? And then Jesus says this. He says in verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives. Okay, notice the tense is there. Gave, but my Father gives. Present tense. God is continually giving. Matthew 4, verse 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that present tense is proceeding from the mouth of God. Our relationships with God should never get boring because God is always talking. <laughs> you know, our toddler, I mean, he's starting to talk now. He's, you know, and, and he wasn't really talking a lot maybe a few months ago. And we were kind of concerned. We were like, maybe we need to speech therapy. I don't know. And then Amber Johnson told us, don't worry. He's going to start talking. He's not going to stop talking. And he starts talking. And he's like, you know, if you take your mind off, if you take your eyes off him for a second, he'd be like, mama, dada. And he's like, now he's using angels, the dog's name, angel, mama, dada, angel. So he has this thing now when he's calling us, when he's waking up before we are. And so we hear this, mama, dada, angel, mama, dada, angel. Like, and did not say angel? He says, I. He never calls our dog angel. I don't know why, but he just calls our dog I. And he goes, mama, dada, I. And I think for him, it's really cool that he can say mama and dada because it's a family. Yeah. And so he just puts it all together. Like, this is a unit that I'm a part of. And so he said, and, and so like, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every rhema that is proceeding, present tense from the, from the mind of God, from the mouth of God. When we wake up in the morning, that is our hunger. And so Jesus does not surrender to their entitlement and say, hey, I've come to give you bread. I've come to give you power. I've come to give you a program. I've come to give you some new philosophy. I'm the dispenser of the bread. I'm the bread dispenser. And isn't that first floor Christianity? Isn't that first floor church life where we're just dispensing all this stuff? And this is good because we're meeting people's need. But there's a higher calling to come to the second floor, to the upper room. And this is what Jesus says. He goes, I didn't, Moses is not the man, but, it's, but God gives this bread from heaven and gives life to the world. He puts bread and life together. They're synonymous. And he said, and then they said to him, sir, they get it. <laughs> Sir, give us this bread always. Give us this bread always, continually. And now, like, when I wake up in the morning, I'm like, God, what are you saying? What are you speaking? 
And I'm seeking that voice of God to hear from him. And Jesus does not surrender to their entitlement and say, hey, I'm going to be the dispenser. He says, I am the bread. Isn't that great? Remember John 11? Lazarus dies. Oh, you're just late. Your schedule. You're, you know, some of us that really wrestle with our schedules, and I'm one of them. I'm just, I don't, I don't know. I, I start early, but I'm always late. I don't get it. And then Jesus shows up three days late for a funeral. Oh, he's dead. That's okay, Jesus. We know he's going to be risen. We know you taught us eschatology. He's going to be risen in the last day. Martha, Martha's living in some kind of future tense relationship with Christ. But, but Jesus, no, I am present tense. The mer- I am present in your situation. I am the resurrection and life. I am the bread. I am your need. I am present in your life. That's why I love in the English language we use the word present and presence. Yeah. Isn't that great? Yeah. God is present because of his presence. And that's the kind of Christianity we live. And Jesus said to them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If you ever want, and this is homework assignment for you. If you ever want to, verse 35, go home and meditate on that. Hunger and thirst. Two different things. What part of you hungers and what part of you thirsts? That's your homework assignment. If you want a homework assignment in church. I want to finish with this. Where's the place where it is? Jesus here talks about it in verse 23. If we back up a little bit, everybody leaves Tiberias, the Sea of Tiberias, and on their way to Cap- Cap- Capernaum. And it's interesting to note, when we get occupied with the miracle and we lose sight of Christ, guess what happens? He's in another location. We've missed it. He's in, he's in Capernaum, and we're still dwelling in Tiberias. And you know what the miracle here is in verse 23? And it's described this way, the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. What happens at the road to Emmaus? And I know I'm saying a lot here. I'm going to, uh, to a lot of points, but I think I've got the concentration in the room to, to handle it. What happens? When does it happen that the disciples recognize that this is Christ, that they're walking with to the, on the road to Emmaus? Right. When he broke the bread. Yeah. Why is that? Because breaking the bread is a symbol of Jesus Christ. And as soon as Jesus Christ breaks the bread, they're like, aha, that's the aha moment. Oh, he's the broken bread. That when we understand that this is the place where it is, is where Jesus is break, where he is the bread being broken in the hands of the Father. And I want to end with this in John 8. This is where we understand. When we understand, I am satisfied. This is where satisfaction comes into the picture. And this is when gratitude can begin. I can say, thank you, great food, but I'm going to be hungry tomorrow. Thank you, Jesus, for all the bread and for the amazing miracles there in the Sea of Tiberias. But here's, we're, in, we're in Capernaum and we're hungry again. And Jesus is like, you're not here because of that. You're here because of something deeper. You have spiritual hunger in your life. Whenever there's this discontentment, and there can be spiritual discontentment, there can be, and I've, I think every one of us in this room have talked about this, where we, are, we just sense this dissatisfaction. And you know what that is? It's a hunger for Jesus. So that we may see him. Sir, give us this bread, not just today, but always, present tense. And this is what happens, is that, and, and this is what happens in John chapter 8. And, and I love these verses. I was thinking about this, and I want to preach a message about this sometime. But when they had heard it in verse 9, Jesus here is talking to a woman who has been just caught in adultery, torn from the bed. She's dragged out, probably naked, into this courtyard, and they're going to stone her to death. And Jesus here is, is talking with her. Jesus has just sent all of her accusers away because 
Jesus uses in the Greek, and he says, he goes, you that are accusing her that have not done the same exact thing in the Greek, right? Yeah. You, may just, you may cast the first stone. And they all leave. And some commentators say that actually it could have been the same sin with that same woman. And so they got to get rid of the witness here. And so this is a really messy deal. And so Jesus is alone with this woman. And this is where, this is where gratitude begins, I think. Here's a woman that has chased the six ways that the world seeks to fulfill the, 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 satis- the, the fulfillment, the need for satisfaction. And she winds up, she's, she's going to die. This is it. This is the end of the road for her. This is where she's going. Her life is going to end. But she meets Jesus. And they went away when they heard it in verse 9 of chapter 8 of John. And they went away one by one. Beginning with the older ones, Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Imagine that picture. Imagine the scene. I mean, this woman's like, okay, I'm dead. I'm done. He's going to stone me himself. Jesus stood up and said to her in verse 10, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Don't you, don't you, does that remind you of Romans chapter 8 verse 1? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And Jesus said, no one Lord. Wow, isn't that amazing? No one Lord. And Jesus said, I'm the only one that can condemn you. I'm the, I'm the righteous one here. I'm the one that could throw the first stone, but neither do I condemn you. And then he says, from now on, go and sin no more. What does that mean? I, we don't have closure here. I was talking to some of you guys about this this week. There's no closure here that she went out and never sinned again. Noah sins, he drinks, he gets drunk, he has this vineyard, he's this, this long planned out um, act of sin, he's planned it out for months, he blows, he's drunk, his family's messed up, but we don't see Moses, I mean we don't see Noah um, repenting and going and burning all of the vineyards, we don't see that happen. I think that some of us would like to see that. Noah, okay let's sit down, okay that was bad, we understand that was bad. Okay, I want you to go and burn all the vineyards so that doesn't, that's not something that, that is a problem in your life in the future. And maybe that's wise counsel, but we don't see the closure here. God doesn't give us the moral satisfaction of seeing something happen here. Okay, now he's never going to do it again. And that's the joy. And that's the great. No, the gratitude here is, is that when Jesus says to us, neither do I condemn you, there's no condemnation. And when you're in that search and we mess it up and we, we find ourselves like that woman at the end of the road of search... And we are not satisfied and we're going to die. And Jesus says to us, I don't condemn you. I am coming. I am the broken bread. I am the judge. I am the God that became breakable. I'm the God that became killable. I'm the God who became vulnerable. I'm the God that is not an angel but a human being. And I have allowed myself to be in a position here to be broken for you. And this is upper room talk. This is upper room life. This is where satisfaction is. And guess what? Sadly, this is the way it is. I don't know why it is this way, but it's 12 men in upper room. And Jesus shows up in John 20, and they're there. They're, they're like, they're going back to the point of reference when, they, when, when Jesus is crucified, and they all run from the cross, and they're up there. They're chilling up there, and then Jesus shows up, and he goes, you blew it, but peace be unto you. When we preach like this, when you meet Jesus Christ, somebody may say to a grace-preaching church, well, you guys preach Jesus, you guys can go and live in sin. Not if you've met Christ. If you've met Jesus Christ, they're, 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 you're in a different trajectory. You're moving in a different direction. I want to end with this. Thanksgiving is more about entitlement for the object or the service that's received. Gratitude is more about the giver and what he gave or did not give. Jesus does not have to answer my prayers for me to have gratitude. He doesn't have to answer my prayers. 
Is it okay if he doesn't answer my prayers? And can I still thank him because of who he is? Gratitude is the, in the Greek is made up of the word grace. I want to finish with this, is that the woman in John 8, because of grace and mercy, experienced liberation from the grind of the search for satisfaction when she was alone with Jesus' forgiveness. When you and I get alone with the forgiveness of Jesus, it changes our lives. It, it just changes our lives. It makes us... And that's what my gratitude is today. It's, it's, it's not because of, I got turkey and we got money in the bank, but it, and, and I'm thankful for that. That could change tomorrow, but I'm great. I'm gr- I have gratitude because I was alone in the presence of a man who forgave me, who could have condemned me and was the only one that could have condemned me. And he forgave me not just once, but forever. I want to close, and I've read this poem before, but I want to read it again. It's by A.B. Simpson. I don't know if you guys have heard this person, but they, he used to write incredible hymns back in the day and and it's a hymn that i think about very often and hear the words and it's called himself once it was a blessing now it is the lord once it was the healing well i'm sorry the feeling now it is his word once his gift i wanted now the giver i own once i sought for healing now himself alone all in all forever only christ i'll sing Everything is in Christ, and Christ is everything. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, that you are everything, Lord. We, we hunger and thirst for things, and we want things. And sometimes as a Christian, an American Christian, we can, we can be disappointed, and we can be disillusioned. We can, be, we can so easily become cynical and detached. But, Lord, we need to see Jesus. We need to see him face-to-face every day. Lord, the Christianity is is not about what we're doing for God or what God expects me to do or me changing my life or me even saving the world. It's, it's just about us coming to Jesus and, and communing with him and watching him break that bread as he begins to have communion with us. Lord, that is us on the road of Emmaus sometimes. God, we want to live for Christ. We want Christ to speak to us Otherwise, God, you can just take us home now. There's no other purpose in this life. There's, we, we just we want Christ. We don't know how that looks, but we hunger and thirst after him. And we know that we, we shall be filled. Lord, we just pray, God, that you would bless us and our families as we meet together. And again, that there would be a time for this gospel that we could share with people. We love you, God, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Let's just get up and sing a song together.